Welcome to the Status Quo uh, Conversations. We're back. It has been a very, very long hiatus. Of course, we have to blame the pandemic, but let us start with getting back into it. So we're going to be doing a bit of a difference this season, and we're going to be focusing more on chats with individuals, specifically Black female entrepreneurs, and how their journey has come along. And I've got with me my guest, uh, Liz. Liz, can you please introduce yourself? Uh, hi, thanks for having me. Uh, my name's Liz Lizwalo. I'm the founder of a beauty brand called Masuri Organics. I think that's and it. yeah, is that about <laughs> it? I think that's about it. You'll get to know more about <laughs> me as we chat, I'm hoping. Okay. All right. All right. All right. That was a very short introduction. I didn't expect that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just talk about a brief introduction of your brand, uh, Masuri Organics. Yeah, Masuri Organics is a beauty brand that focuses specifically on hair care and body care. Um, it's named after the most influential woman of my life, um, my mother. And essentially, uh, the vision for Masuri Organics was to create a brand that can deliver three key things for me and hopefully for consumers. One is um, a brand that is, um, you know, thoughtfully made. The ingredients are thoughtfully, um, you know, chosen. Um, each of our products has a key ingredient from nature um, that I think speaks to the kind of value we wanted to be able to bring to people as they use it. And the second aspect of it is, um, you know, inspired by nature, which ties into um, the thoughtful ingredients part of it. Um, a lot of us are starting to look to nature for solutions in terms of our health, in terms of our beauty routines, in terms of just what we eat. And I think it, it's, it's very relevant to to that kind of trend. And lastly, I wanted to create a brand that is, um, call it honest, or that is realistic um, in terms of the communicating the value it brings to consumers, but as well as realistic in terms of the beauty standards that we push and we put out there um, is the benchmark for beauty. We wanted people to see a reflection of themselves in some of the imageries that we share. We wanted people to feel that we're not following a corrective approach, um, you know, in, in, in how we choose to communicate beauty towards them. We wanted them to know that this is a brand that helps them nourish themselves and actually a brand that they can reject altogether if they like. Mm -hmm. So how have you uh, found your entrepreneurship journey? Because I've been familiar with my story. I think it is from last year. Actually, I like 2019. 2019. 2019, let me not, let me not, 2019. Have you found the whole entrepreneurship journey? Yeah, I can never talk about the story of Masuri Organics without acknowledging the existence of an entity called Good Hair. That's the first business um, that I started with two of my friends, um, Ijangolet Ogwang, who's now gone on to be an author of a best-selling um, book in South Africa, and, and I believe globally, um, and Sandisi Woyengeni, who's gone on to pursue her master's in development finance, um, did part of that um, studying in Prague. Um, we were three young people who met in our first job in a multinational organization that was a consumer goods um, entity. Um, we sort of wanted to pursue something that resonated with all of us as black women. We started Good Hair, which was a mobile hair salon. Um, and at the time I had just started a new job, a, a very hectic management consultancy. And, um, you know, Shares was just publishing a book. CEO was also doing a master's. Obviously you can listen to the story and tell where it's going to end. Um, it wasn't a good time for us at the time. And, um, you know, the lack of success of Good Hair left me feeling like, hmm, that was a bit tasty. I think there's something there that I can pursue. And, you know, it made sense um, from where I was at the time to go into the product space because I thought it was um, more manageable um, from a logistics perspective, from an ops perspective, it was way more manageable. From a financing perspective, way more manageable than um, a service business was. That's essentially how Masuri Organics was born. Mm. So when I, let's talk, let's take a step back. Yeah. 
since good hair didn't work out, what made you say, you know what, the pain of entrepreneurship, let me do it again? Yeah, I think I was very clear about why good hair didn't work. Um, I think all of us came back and we said, you know, why do we think it didn't work? I think it didn't work simply because the timing wasn't right. I was in a very hectic job. Um, we actually did not put in as much effort as I know we should have um, into good hair. So I don't think good hair failed because it was a bad idea or because it wasn't supported enough. Um, I just think we just didn't give it our all. Um, and all of us in some shape or form have acknowledged that. Um, so going into a product business for me felt way more manageable. And at a certain point, I made the decision that I am going to start something that I know I can Give it a give it a punch and, and and really give it my all and I think that's that's what gave me almost the audacity to say let's go again. Hmm. I actually like the term audacity and um, yeah. misused sometimes, but I, I like the term. I like yeah. the term. Yeah. So in terms of when you were when you were investigating the whole product product um, space product development, um, just from a just from a understanding of some of your background, how did you put together the ingredients? Yeah. It was a very it was a very strategic thing um, to go the organic route when the name Masuri Organics now with an S at the end started off as Masuri Organic um, and you know it was it was um, by circumstance because to formulate organic products was more easier for me because all I had to do was to mix oils and butters and and deliver them to to to, to customers and at the time when I started Masuri Organics in 2018 the trend was very much natural. There was a natural high of, I want just shea butter. People didn't even want it to be whipped. They were starting to say, can I just get raw shea butter as it is? And because of that, I thought, you know, um, this is this is ve- this requires very little formulation. It requires very little science. All I have to do is to play around with the ingredients, send it to a lab and say, is this safe for use? And I'm done. So that's essentially the investigation that I had to do in terms of a formulation perspective. But from a market perspective, then you have to ask yourself the question, is this um, sustainable for longevity, right? Um, we know when I came in, I came in with African black soap shampoo. I came in with the likes of shea butter and pure oils. And I knew at the time that the formulation was limited. But for someone who did not have as much capital and um, for someone who understood that in order to be given money, sometimes you need to prove it, um, a track record, I knew that I had to start somewhere and that somewhere had to be modest, Mm. So in terms of product formulation now, how has it grown now from 2018 now to 2021? I'm very excited because we have grown significantly. So over the past, I would say, year, we have been working with professional formulators now um, to formulate a new hair care range and a body care range. Um, You know, you'll start seeing a bit more sophisticated um, products, activated charcoal shampoo, which is something that you can't just whip up in your garage. And you'll start seeing things like um, deep conditioner, which has more complex sort of like, you know, ingredients in there. You start seeing um, us be more confident in our claim that we're free from parabens, we're free from sulfates, we're free from mineral oils, because we know we have the information, the certifications to back those kinds of claims up. So um, the traction that we have made with the modest formulations and with the modest um, starting point we had has allowed us the runway to grow and get to where we are today. Mm. So in terms of, um, since you're here now in year number three, and there is a big natural hair, natural hair, natural product, word um, movement how have you felt how have you felt around the concept of the fact that um, the natural hair movement has sort of taken a step in the opposite direction yeah how have you felt about that development because 
your products are suited more for, are targeted to people with afros, whereas people who relax their hair wouldn't, wouldn't make the, wouldn't make the, make the jump to use your product. Yeah. So it's two things, actually. One is, um, on the movement of, you know, going backwards, sort of like take took two, two steps forward and one step back, if you like, it, it makes me excited. It makes me happy to know that we're finally getting to a space where black women have now their agency. Um, I got a feeling that at the very beginning of the natural movement, people were going natural, um, you know, almost as a political statement, almost as a rebellious phase, almost as a way to say, even me, I embrace myself, which was necessary. But I think to see now today someone say, I have a wig and underneath my wig is natural hair or underneath my wig is um, relaxed hair. If I want to next week, I'll cut it off. It'll grow again. I think that's, that's, that's precisely what um, I, 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 I would consider as liberation. That is precisely what my hope is for black women. So, um, and two is on the product side of things being natural. I think this is a huge um, lesson even for me as a brand owner to say the way in which we communicate um, our products has to be uh, more informative. Our products, are, so there's the natural part of our products contain key natural ingredients and there's the natural part of, oh, we are targeted as, at women with Afros. And we're not necessarily a brand that targets just women with Afros or men with Afros, if you like. Um, we are a natural brand, particularly from um, the, the key ingredients that we use, but we can be used by everyone, including um, on your weaves, if you like. We have like an anti-itch spray now. When you have a weave, you probably need your scalp to be look, looked after. Um, my, my one sister has relaxed hair. I know I give her my hair food a lot because she loves it. It's actually nourishing. Um, and that is a huge lesson, I think, for people like myself to say, be careful how you communicate the value of your brand such that other people don't feel that they don't fit in. Mm, that's actually a very important, um, very important concept because one of the things I felt, um, I'm quarter to relaxing my hair. I have too much. I'm quarter to every day. <laughs> I, I reassess my life goals about the relaxer yeah. and yeah. all because I personally have too much hair. Yeah. I'm part of the, the club of people that are, I, natural hair is work for me. Yeah. Hair is work. I yeah. don't like work. That's why I've got a weave on. I dislike the labor of it all. I'm not sold on the labor. It's not political. It's not yeah. political. I'm just not sold on the labor. Yeah. So um, let's just talk about what do you think are some of your early challenges that you had to overcome considering you're in year three? Yeah. Which I still believe is still early stages. Still early stages. We'll talk again maybe in 10 years, but still, we're still in the beginning. It is so early. And I think one of the things that humbles me is looking at people who've been in the game 15, 20 years and seeing where they are today. And I'm like, shucks, we are still, there's still a very long way to go. It takes a long time to build a sustainable organization. Um, some of the early challenges I've had will definitely be money. Um, you know, especially as a woman who is solving what normally I call challenges that are targeted at minority groups. People don't take you seriously when you walk into a room and you pitch and you say, oh, I'm a hair care brand um, for two reasons. And some of these reasons are somewhat um, founded in some sort of truth. Um, although I feel like the specificity of it sometimes is lacking because obviously sometimes you walk into the room and people have already decided that they're not excited about your business. But one is, you know, when you come and you say, I'm a hair care brand um, owner and this is what I'm trying to do, people shut off. They're like, oh, another one. Because there's so many of us. Um, 
the fact that there's so many of us makes me excited. I don't see a problem in that. But I also think a lot of funders are starting to see people like myself as people going for the low-hanging fruit, the unexciting industry, the non-profitable industry, whatever stereotypes might be there. Um, and the second thing also is that because I believe of just the sociopolitics of where we are in the world, as a black woman already, by the time you walk into the room, you already feel like, okay, fine, if it's not a take business, what are you doing here? Kind of thing, right? Um, and that's one of the things that I've experienced a lot where even the questions, I mean, I've been in corporate for about five years. I, I, I believe I know what strategy and operations um, both look like. I believe I know what, um, you know, a thoughtful um, and well thought out analysis looks like. Sometimes you listen to the questions that you asked and you can tell in the questions that there is no respect, you know, and those are some of the challenges that I've experienced. And another one that I've experienced is, um, you know, just feeling that you have opportunities and you have created opportunities in what I would call magical moments, but even you having achieved those things is not enough to convince um, entities to back you. I'll give you an example. We've been sitting on um, a retail listing for over a year and a half with one of the biggest retailers in South Africa, right? Um, I've been talking to multiple entities about, okay, fine, here's my business plan. And I have gotten, I think, um, two entities tell me, Liz, we will back you by virtue of who you are, because you're passionate about what you do, because you sound like you know what you're doing, because your pitch is solid. You will get something like a letter of interest. If you hit milestone ABC, come back. And then I go and I get a retail um, contract and I'm like, I'm back all I need. I'm, I was a team of one person at the time, making everything from end to end, from product to sales, to marketing, to everything. You go back and the goalposts are shifting. And, you know, I think one of the things I've seen is the level of risk aversion um, in terms of um, just giving funding to young people. Some of the questions you asked, sometimes I give the answer, which sounds very dumb, but I'm like, honestly speaking, there's no other way to know the answer to this question other than going in and giving it a try. How, how do you know that this product will move? You know, I can say, hey, look at brand XYZ. I think this is the benchmark. This is how they're doing. This is what they look like. You can do that kind of thing. But if someone is still like, yeah, but how do we know yours will move? I'm like, beyond the numbers and beyond the extrapolations and interpolations and whatever it is, we can, as an entrepreneur, it's my, it's my duty to trust. As a funder, it's your duty to trust and limit your trust with some sort of risk management in, in place. Say I'll give you a fraction of what you're asking for because I'm trying to, you know, manage my risk. Um, but I haven't seen that a lot. And that's been hugely challenging. Uh, don't take offense to it. Um, say funders are very risk averse. It's, um, yeah. it's the nature. It's yeah. the nature of our economy and also the nature of being as, being as capital starved. So we have the same risk factors that everyone else has, but we have got less capital in order to alleviate and address some of those risks. So you, you can't really take it personally. I try to tell people it's yeah. not a reflection of who you are. I exactly. had to give someone a speech yesterday. I'm like, it's not a reflection <laughs> of you, who you are. And you know, you know what's crazy? What's, what's interesting is that I wear that cap from time. So sometimes I walk out of room like, oh man, that sucked. But then because you also have seen the other side or have had a glimpse of the other side, I'm like, I think I, I, I understand what contributes to this, but damn, it sucks. Yeah, <laughs> and, also, and you also you have to understand. Um, so 
Okay, I actually need to know which which beauty brands have been backed by which yeah. fin- finance organizations, and a lot of them have actually gotten burnt. Again, I think we talked about it earlier in terms of the. I don't know what's the word. Um, the word I'm going to use is the delusion of the projections. Have not always come to a realization. So you're coming on the back of, I will say, and this is me defending funders, is that you're pitching in 2020, 2021, in 2016, 2017, there were a lot of natural hair care brands that were backed and they haven't done traction in terms of what they thought they would have. And a lot of them, especially the ones who've had, who have retail listings, without giving away names in terms of who who I'm referring to, a lot of them are actually underwater transaction-wise and have had to look at reimagining. So you're coming on the back of that. Yeah. So they've tried, but they've not um, had quite the success. And if you terms of, if you look at terms of natural brands um, in South Africa, this is just me talking in terms of what I understand the numbers to be and what sort of some of the success factors is that besides one, None of them have managed to break even on a retail listing and all retail listings have actually cost them money more than anything is because they've not built up a big enough um, product um, affinity. And also in terms of store selection, and this is also where when retailers are looking to get into natural hair care, there's a way in terms of you need to pick which stores you try it on and not try to go for scale in sort of... um, how retailers and SA work, especially when they go to listings, they work on a concept called um, spray and catch-all. That's sort of what their strategy is. With natural care care, you actually have to be very more specific and be more deliberate. And that will come with strategy, but that will also come only with time. And unfortunately, when it comes with time, there's going to be, I always like to say, school fees need to be paid. And there's going to be a few dead horses and a lot of bad <laughs> it sounds evil when I say it out loud but there just has to be a few sacrificial lambs and it's part most of the process and, and it's yeah. part of the process and yeah. but most investors don't want to be the sacrificial sacrificial lamb yeah. and also when I look at um this I know this is supposed to be an interview but I'm um, also in terms of what I understand it to be just so when someone listens to this they they get the full picture in that when you look at how natural care is um, sort of targeted in South Africa. It's targeted in niches, not in the mainstream media. And also mainstream media, when I talk about mainstream media, it's in terms of there's no natural hair mention and ACBC1 or ACBC2, and that's where your mark three. That's where your market actually sits and you work. You need to educate from a mainstream perspective, which is the model that was used in the US. So if you remember back in terms of shows, you always saw people plaiting hair, going through the natural process, you could see them plaiting it. The reason why it was there was to conscientize you in terms of the amount of work. And if you don't educate your consumer, yeah. natural care is the only aspect, it sounds strange, where you actually have to educate your consumer before they make their purchase and during the purchase process and going on. Because I remember when there was lockdown and I couldn't go to the hair salon and I had to spend eight hours on wash day. That is why I spent eight hours. Eight hours. So, so that when you said, this is it, I'm relaxing right yeah. That's when the feeling came. I was like, what the? No, no, I was like, what is this? What is this? I'm like, I'm still good. I'm still, I'm like, my arms are so, my arms are so like, I, I had that process. And I think yeah. that's sort of where it is. So from a funding yeah. perspective, um, in terms of how you pitch, I can see why, why you got the response you got. 
<laughs> I can, sorry, I need to actually think about this. I can see why you got the response you got. And also, when I always tell entrepreneurs, you need to pitch to your audience, not pitch your vision, pitch to them. Yeah. not to your vision and I, I love it when entrepreneurs are passionate I think it's one of the yeah. I think that's also one of the reasons why I invited you because you always speak so passionately about the African story in terms of where you want your brand to grow and what you're trying to do which I think is very marvelous but when it comes to funders you need to pitch yeah. to them not to you and also understand where they've gone wrong and also what I always like to tell people okay this is going above beyond topic but <laughs> is you need to case study why it's gone wrong with the other yeah. funders and what went wrong. Yeah. And you know what? We, we, we've done the work. So one of the things I've realized is there are, there are audiences, funder audiences that are not for me. Yes. They Let them go. Don't go there. Exactly. Waste, waste they time. Are, they are fun. So initially at the very beginning, out of the panic of, oh my gosh, something needs to happen, something needs to happen, you end up, the one lesson I've learned is I've ended up pitching to people I had no business pitching to. Um, and that's a lesson. It's like, listen, um, that person just was not going to hear me because this is not a product that resonates. This is not something they, it doesn't make sense to them. Um, so that was one. And two is precisely what you're saying, um, talking to people um, in a way that resonates with them versus talking to the story in a way from my heart, I guess, if you like. Um, you know, that was a huge lesson. Um, some people care about numbers. If, if I want to hear numbers, Liz, I don't care what your story is. I don't care what your brand stands for. Show me the numbers. I've seen people like that. I've seen people who say, Liz, quite frankly, I don't care about the numbers. I'm a successful old woman who, you know, just wants to invest in young, passionate women. And they're looking for a story that touches their heart um, to invest into, you know. And um, as I was starting to pitch more, I started understanding, um, you know, what what were some of the mistakes that I've made. Um, but I also started, under, I could tell before I walked into a room that mm, I shouldn't have been here. <laughs> no, know? no, no, by the way, by the way, I tell people all the time. Yeah. Don't go there. It's almost like, no, exactly. I could be the 1% success. I'm like, guys, no. you're not, you're really not. You don't really, sweat it. Don't sweat it. It's not about you. And like, and yeah. I sound so mean when I say that. I'm like, no. And I, and I think, and I think when I look at um, the funding market in SA, so if you look at VCs, VCs right now, all they care about is FinTech. Yeah. 80% of money is going to FinTech. So unless you're a FinTech business, do not even knock on the door. It is a waste of time. It is a waste of emotions because, you know, when rejection hurts, let no one lie to you. Yeah. Rejection hurts. I have, I honestly, I've dealt with rejection. Rejection hurts. Like, it, I don't know what it does to you, but it just takes you, even if you know in your head, this was not the right audience, all those logical things. It hurts. Yeah. Now, my question is, how do you overcome the it hurts part? You know what? I I I I don't struggle a lot with um, business rejection. I, I if there's one rejection that I know hurts is rejection from just emotional connection, rejection from people. If I want to be your friend, then you you don't want to be my friend. That hurts. But business rejection, I think I've, I've, I've I try a lot of things and I get rejected so many times. I don't struggle a lot with rejection from that regard. And it's it it feels like such a such a lie, but it's true. Like the one rejection I struggle with is from people. If I'm trying to reach out to you from heart to heart and you reject me, ouch, that really breaks me. But if it's an organization saying no, um, sometimes I get I get more annoyed <laughs> than hurt. Like, 
who do you think you are? How dare you reject me kind of thing? Yeah, but I think one of the things that I also um, know is that rejection sometimes gives you something valuable, right? If you're an honest person who's able to reflect and say, yeah, no, Liz, that, that, that was not up to standard then you know why you got rejected. I think that's that's because I'm I'm that kind of person who's like, okay, why are you saying no? If if I think you're unreasonable, I'll just think to myself, okay, this is an audience that was genuinely just not my kind of audience. But oftentimes good rejections give you insight. And I think because you see how thoughtful people are, oftentimes, even when I got rejected, I get rejected in a thoughtful way where people are like, yeah, no, we think it's people take time to give you the detail of what didn't work. People take time and people actually extend themselves to you and show that they actually care. Oh, this is a good idea. This just didn't work here or didn't work there. And I think from that perspective, it doesn't feel like an, like, like an entire loss. Hmm. Yeah. No, that's very, very good. Very, very good. I think... Always, I think I think what many organisations do is don't provide feedback, and I'm a big believer in that. Sometimes you actually have to tell someone why it was a no, yeah. why it was a no, yeah. and you need to trust that they'll be able to take the information and do better next time. Because I also think that's also quite critical. The next thing I want to talk about is the impact of COVID nineteen. How was the ghettoness of that? It was COVID. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that was actually, interestingly, we, our revenue grew quite significantly during COVID because we're a beauty business. And then I started off running my business in my garage, right, in our complex. And um, complex management caught on. And then obviously they started escalating and told me to stop. So I had to close shop because of that, not because of COVID for um a couple of weeks and then a friend of mine reached out and said Liz um, go to this um, place they have like reasonable places just check if you can um, get a space and we got a space and we started having to pick up again but one of the lessons from that is that it's a very interesting thing like stopping operations even for two weeks or even for a week it when you decide to resume it feels like you're starting from the ground again and that was one of the lessons that I picked up had I known this at the time I would have just continued taking orders and kicked in the background and then just sort of like dispatch them as um, backlog um, after a week or so, you know. Um, but I don't think COVID has impacted us that negatively. So the only thing that did happen was that one of my first employees that I had, I had to let her go because um, after three months of COVID um, starting, so she started on the 1st of March um, and COVID hit, I think, a week later. Lockdown mm -hmm. came a week later. So we tried to like string along for a good three months. And I mean, her job was very hands-on. We couldn't continue. So that's the one thing that really hit me hard. She was the first person I had to let go in my entire life. And that really, really shattered me. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So no, no, no. By the way, a lot of business business, it's because we were at home. There were no salons. Yeah, yeah. There were no salons. Yeah. So no, no. You had, to, you had to source. You had yeah. to source the yeah. natural ingredients. Yeah. I now own shampoo. <laughs> no, I know really I never own shampoo. No, I, I, I never it sounds evil as if when I tell them people, but I never owned shampoo. Yeah. And yeah, it was just one of those things that I think uh, I started purchasing more. I started purchasing more as so I see where the growth comes from. Yeah. Um so besides the whole COVID impact and then having to move spaces, what other what do you think has been sort of your anchor through all of this happening? What has been your support system? Because I don't think we've spent enough time talking about yeah. what entrepreneurial support system yeah. do you have? I'll probably get emotional talking about this, but my family, right? Um, 
I have an incredible family. I have, I'm from a big family, so I have five other siblings um, and my mom and my dad, and they're just so incredibly supportive. So, you know, they'll buy my products, they'll listen to my podcast and give me feedback, they'll listen to my interviews and stuff. Um, and to also know that there is a home, right? Um, because as an entrepreneur, it gets wild where you're like, shucks, I don't know if this thing will work out. I don't know if it won't. Um, but to know that there is a home where if push comes to shove, there is a room that is vacant and that awaits me is one of the biggest blessings that I wasn't um, cognizant of until entrepreneurship, like the thickness of it hit. To know that if push comes to shove, I will get into my car, I will drive to Zanin, I will find my mother and my father in the house and I will live with them and I will be loved. That was absolutely um, cushioning. To know that if push comes to shove and entity X doesn't come for me in terms of dispersing the funds they said they would disperse, I have sister X somewhere who can put together X amount, another brother X can put together X amount, we will make something happen that is absolutely comforting. And I think to also surround myself with um, true friends. And I, and, I, and I say true friends, not because I, I, I necessarily believe in the concept of fake friends, but I think sometimes when we do um, things that are so um, outwardly and things where, you know, you post your work on social media, I'm used to my work being very private because I've been in corporate quite a lot. And my, so the Masori Organics experience has made my work so outwardly, so public, so seen, which makes you feel almost naked, vulnerable, right? Um, to be so connected and so in touch with so many people is also risky because it gives the illusion of um, friendships that don't necessarily have resilience, right? And for me, one of the biggest lessons during, um, you know, the lockdown, you, you really start going through experiences that remind you that there is um, business partnerships, there is acquaintances, there is um, just colleagues in the industry or colleagues out there, but they are your true friends who are there for you and whom you need to remember to be there for. And that um, reminder was just so life-changing for me, but also paired with the luck of my two friends then coming back to South Africa from their studies, which meant that then I had them closer and we can do drinks and we can do lunch and whatever it is, was just so, was just so wonderful. <laughs> no, I, no, I'm a believer in a support system. I'm yeah. a believer in a, a friend of mine, she's in a group they call it Entrepreneurs Anonymous. Ah. <laughs> Entrepreneur. No, it's literally a group where they cry with each oh. other. It's a crying group. That's it's what necessary. I call it. It's necessary. That I call it a crying group because that's yeah. what they do in that WhatsApp group. No, and I think it's very, very, very important that you have that space of your, you've got that support system because I fundamentally believe the entrepreneurship journey cannot be done in isolation. You require a village, a village of the people you know yeah. and the village of the people you don't know. Yeah. Because those are the ones who are going to carry you through because ultimately for you to make the next steps, the next growth stage, you're going to need people to advocate for you who don't know you. Yeah. Yeah. And who've never met you. Yeah. But believe in the vision of what you're trying to create and they're going to back you. And yeah. I think that's also one of the things I love about entrepreneurship, the soft things I love about entrepreneurship in terms of the way it's so life-changing. Yeah. By the way, I'm one of those numbers people. I'm one of those numbers. Sidebar. I'm one of those You're like, give me my numbers. numbers. I'm one of those numbers people, but I also believe in the story yeah. of it all. And I think that uh, we need to get to a point where 
Africans are selling beauty to each other. Yeah. Because ultimately, we need products that work in our climate. Yeah. Because our climate is like one of the most example, little example I made was I switched sunscreen to a local product and it's done. I wish I switched earlier. Yeah. I wish I dimmer for those who you know dimmer Oh, I love no, it. it. It does the things. I, I've been, I, 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 I don't know what it. happened. I don't know why. I feel so late on the bus. I we feel all so, love it. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. I feel so late on the bus. Yeah. And yeah. So what are your future plans? How, yeah. What are the stories? Yeah. <laughs> so I actually bought your products for my mom on Take A Lot. Oh, thank you. Mm. That's cool. Yeah, um, she, she, she wanted to try. She's oh, been hearing about natural products. So she I'm excited. To- thank you. Um, future plans. So I was doing, um, I was having a conversation with someone else yesterday and they said, um, what are your future plans? And I said, I have two sort of plans. One is um, in the context of Masuri Organics and the beauty industry um, at large. So I think the future of beauty is customized. Um, the future of everything, mm-hmm. of service, of food, everything is essentially customized. But I don't think we emphasize customization in beauty enough, especially um, for Africans. You've just talked about your experience of switching to a locally made um, you know, sunscreen. And one of the things I've been, so at the very core of Masuri Organics, and this is what people don't know, because obviously I don't have the money to execute it now. Masuri Organics started off as a um, customized beauty products. But then how are you going to customize when you don't have the resource? How are you going to customize when you when you don't have, you know, the runway? You have to start somewhere again, right? Um, I want you to say, you know, my skin evolves with four seasons of the year. Yes, your product X works for me in winter, but it does not work for me in summer. We need to either do one of two things. One is have dynamic formulations that are not static throughout the year. One body butter, the same product but evolves in terms of formulation throughout the season so that it takes into account that change. Or two, we need to have a human or person or consumer specific formulation where we say we have gathered um, with her consent um, and ethically so, um, you know, customer A's um, data and we know the trends of the ingredients that works for her over time. So that is essentially what I want to do. I want Masodi Organics to have a, um, an R&D institute, probably the biggest in Africa. I want Masodi Organics to have that. And I want it to be the house for other local brands too. Um, you know, and, if, and, and it doesn't even have to be an ego-driven um, initiative that has to necessarily be led by Masodi Organics. But one of my dreams is, is for there to be a research and development institute for beauty in Africa, where all the beauty brands can come, create, innovate, think outside of the box and give people fresh new things that we have not thought about because of the constraints of whatever environments we found we found ourselves in. Um, you know, I, I, I've been asking myself the question the other time, each time when I have an Afro, it's beautiful, it's puffy, I've twisted it overnight. Each time I go into the water to take a swim, it would be nice to have a spray that I spray on my head and my Afro becomes almost waterproof. That would be wonderful. I would use that product. I want that product. <laughs> when I have an effort, there's no swimming for me. There's no swimming. And, and, there's no swimming. There's no saunas. There's there's ma'am, no need. There's no too. need. There's no. Don't worry. I, I, I don't even entertain the idea. Right. Oh, oh, you get on the tube and you just lounge. You just right. lounge. I'm right. there in the pool. 
but there's no swimming. Absolutely. And I'm like, okay, as a black woman, even as a founder of a hair care brand, when I have my Afro out, I have to twist it overnight and wake up in the morning so that it's in a certain shape. Is there no way that we can try to achieve all those things that are, that make Afro so labor intensive? Because it is, um, you know, and I think it's not easy. I empathize with, the, you know, the founders and all the people within this industry because it's not easy. But I think if we actually invested in something like the R&D Institute that I would like to build for Masori Organics, that would be brilliant. Someone like you might say, if I want to switch to relax hair, I'm switching because the preference of how I choose to look, not because it's labor intensive to have an Afro, right? Yeah, and I like it because they actually have something similar in... Korea, actually, that's why they've got the K Beauty Institute. There, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, because you know K Beauty. Oh, you, know, you know K. I know. No, it's they, big they, now. You know those Koreans, those that that glass skin, the yeah, glass yeah. skin. They don't play games. No, uh, they the glass skin. No, and, and it's actually quite interesting when you talk about seasons. I have a two regiments: one for winter, one for summer. Oh, wow. No, you have to. Yeah. No, you have to. I never used to when I used to live in PE. Okay. But Joburg is so dry. It's it's Joburg. You don't you don't have to do it. You don't have to do it yeah. in but Joburg, just because of, I'm in Joburg, and I think that's what I think happened. And you know what? I, I like the fact that you're thinking about collaborative, because I think yeah. that for me, the fact that natural beauty is one little corner. Anyway. One little corner <laughs> of the back. Don't even think it's in the front. It's in the back. You have to walk. Down the Absol- aisle absolutely. in a dark corner that yeah. you could get killed in. <laughs> no, I, 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 I must say he was laughing, but I actually just thought I had to go to the back. It was no, and it was in Mall of Africa. I thought yeah. that was, I was, yeah. I was like, but you know what? I've started to see um, in some of these retailers a lot more local brands getting elevated to the top of the shelves, to the mid sort of like eye level shelving, which has been quite a huge relief because. Um, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that, you know, that, that shows movement. But I told you about the first, the first, the first um, way forward. The second way forward is I am an aspiring public servant. Um, You know, I would like to, in some shape or form, um, participate in, um, you know, governing this country or this continent uh, directly or indirectly. Because you know what? Um, (laughs) It's scary. And we laugh about the state of our country a lot. But it's scary um, sitting and watching. I have a friend who, um, you know, grew up in um, another African country. I'm scared to just mention names. Another African country. And, you know, when they were, I think, about um, 16, he said, the father said, we're shipping you to the U.S. You're going to study there. And he said, I didn't want to because, you know, it was home. Things were nice. And the father said, this is a sinking ship. You have to go. Um, You know, and retrospectively, he says, I look back and I realize how much foresight my father had. And I said, I asked him the question, actually, how did your father know, um, you know, when a sinking ship becomes a sinking ship? He says, very basic things, water, electricity and infrastructure. Um, The moment you start having to live without things as basic as electricity and water and infrastructure, something as simple as a road, um, you can start worrying. There's very um, basic or common cues um, that a lot of these states um, that start off well, maybe, and then sort of like go backwards. um, There's very common cues that show you that. And, um, you know, his view, not necessarily mine, is that it's unfair to say South Africa is a failed state. But if we do not do anything, what makes us um, immune 
from what other countries have sort of like gone through. And one of the things I've also started realizing is we have associated politics with this, you know, it's a dirty game. It's, it's, and I'm like, this is how actually the people who do not um, have the intentions to serve our country end up occupying these positions for so long and so comfortably because they don't have a challenge. Um, being good should not be synonymous with um, being scared of going into arena and battling it out um, for a good cause and, and ethically so. And I think the more you listen to people, the more frustration you, you you get a sense of. And I'm hoping that, you know, myself and many other people, even through businesses, we can get somehow involved. Mm, no, I'm a believer in country yeah. and continent. I do think, yeah, I don't think we're failed yet. Definitely not. But we're close. We and need to do we, something. We, they, I think there's sort of like a tipping point that we're in where we either do something or uh, we're going to be another story. And, and And that's for me, I think that's what we're sort of like, and yeah, I, 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 I do see it. And I do say that, but you know, it's, I've always believed that you actually yeah. have to be the change you want to see and you have to be wanting to. Um, I, I find a lot of people are what you call keyboard activists. Mm-hmm. And I always ask people, how engaged are you with in terms of your local government elections, your yeah. local government, what's happening locally government, yeah. what's happening in provincial government? Before we go to national government, which is what preoccupies most people, yeah. the biggest issue that you should always look at is your local government, what's happening in your local municipality, what are the state of the finances, why do we have certain situations and why have they been allowed to profilate? It's because people are not engaged with local. We've got local government elections coming up. I vote every election, so I don't know this nonsense of people not voting. I don't get it. I'm a believer that you should, and it is, and it's sort of what politicians rely on. And I've always maintained people like, the reason why our governing party is so comfortable is because half the country does not vote. Yeah, yeah. And what you're talking about with the keyboard um, activism is, is is reflected, interestingly, in elections results, right? Yes. You will see um, political party A looking very promising on social media because there's so many people behind their keyboards. But come queuing time, no one wants to actually get themselves out of the comfort of their couch or bed and um, go and vote. And I think it's actually very disappointing. But I also think there is a point where the pain is going to be so severe that each of us will get kicked out of um, our... Maybe we don't even have couches now to sit on. No, uh, and I think it's... And for me, you shouldn't have to wait for an election cycle to be an engaged person. And I'm a a believer. One of my, my passions is on business development, a small business development scaling, how they work. I like business models as a concept. I, I like business models as a concept and I want to understand how they work, how they grow and under what environment should they thrive in. And I like to look at different models in terms of what's worked, where and why. Yeah. Because a lot of people, what I also hate is a lot of people like to replicate, um, replicate movements if it worked in the USA, let's put it in SA. The without, conditions are not the same. Yes, without understanding the conditions, the structure, uh, the the it's like everyone wants to get a Tesla, but we Escom is showing us flames. So it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Oh, uh, no, uh, no, that's why electric cars can't take off in SA. It yeah. literally is the 
sole reason. It's, it's, it's literally, it's like, well, we would love to, yeah, but alas. Here we are. Uh, you know what also I find interesting? Um, the notion that, especially as entrepreneurs um, hold that a lot, the notion that, um, oh, government is failing me, therefore let me just go do my own business and then, you know, I will thrive and I will. And I'm like, the government is actually... <laughs> responsible for creating a, an environment for businesses to thrive or fail. Um, you cannot um, entirely isolate yourself from any government. Um, so ironically, yeah. before I interject, I yeah. was watching this thing from this other Kenyan entrepreneur. Yeah. And he, people were talking about how great FinTech is there, Safari, and Pesa. And he said something. And he's like, this is, this is an example of failed state. And he said, you can't out-innovate basic infrastructure. Absolutely. You can't. And I, I literally, it blew my mind. Literally, Absolutely. everyone was, everyone was like clapping, saying, Mpesa, look at the phone. And he was like, no, guys, no. no. The reason why this exists and this is why this is necessary Absolutely. is because of a little thing yeah. called our government hasn't yeah. hasn't done financial inclusion. Not even your medical aid today can save you from the healthcare crisis that we have. And we, we saw that with, with COVID. Yes. I saw that today when I was just sharing the story of um, my partner still stuck somewhere, not getting, uh, he's got medical aid, um, you know, not getting the attention as quickly as he had expected. You, you cannot insulate, the government um, creates or sets the tone for how, for the, for how the country functions. Um, some people might be able to insulate themselves to a certain extent, but not absolutely. You can live in a gated estate. Um, crime will still, in one shape, in one shape or form, still find its way to you. So I think it's important, even for um, you know entrepreneurs and for people in private sector, to recognize that we have to participate in helping the government succeed. Mm. We have no alternative. Uh, it literally is what I preach all the time. People think yeah. people think I joke when I tell them this. And I was like, no, guys. When I tell you, and it's, it's always when we talk about entrepreneurs and someone was like, you know, you know, DFIs. And I was like, DFIs back 80% of all black entrepreneurs. Right. All. Right. Not big. All. And when I say all, I, I don't say that number out loud. VCs in South Africa only fund, I think it was two or three percent, depending on who you speak to in terms of value and volume. Two or three percent of black people in a country with 80 percent black people. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. that is just like, yeah. that is just, I always laugh about that. I was actually having, I was on a panel with um, some of the VC guys and they built. Yeah. Like they were quite a, they were like, Sinisifa, why must you be so controversial? <laughs> they were like, literally, literally, it was a panel. It was literally, it was Entrepreneurship Week. And literally, I was like, <laughs> they, I do remember, remember the one panel where you were on. And I you get face. another variation of that question. Yes. And I was like, I, I was literally, I literally, my face, literally, because we were doing it on video call, and my face, someone was like, Sinisifa's face is literally. Because they, they I, I got muted. I got muted. No, he mutes. I got muted. They were like, I was like, no, but I think if we don't talk about this, yeah. it's Global Entrepreneurship Week and we're missing this, this link, but we're getting detracted. What would you say to your younger self when you were starting? Like, what? This is what you should not have done. This is what you should not have done. I would say built, so these are not my words. These are the words of um, Brene Brown. I think she, she, she said them in one of these podcasts she was doing. She said, build slow and deep. I'm a very passionate person and my passion um, meant that I do things really, really fast. Um, I have an idea now, let's go for it. Um, and I think one of the things I've learned over time is taking, 
having that urgency, but having patience, because then it means I'm not agitated um, in how I execute things. I'm not, you know, frustrated, easily frustrated when I don't get that yes on that day. Or, you know, um, when I sat on that retail listing for almost a year and a half, um, the first year of it was hugely frustrating. Like, what more do you want me to do? I think there was almost a time where I had somewhat of a meltdown on Twitter because just like, what? The I, I think you? I saw that. I think I saw because, that. Because it was like, what do you want me to do? But I think, you know, the lesson that came after that, and, and maybe some of these things are put in place to, to help refine us, right, and, and make us better. It, it's fine. Um, if, if I'm not getting something, sometimes it means I'm not ready. Sometimes I did not materialize the thing that I was hoping to materialize because it was not the best, um, you know, the best it could have been because I, I genuinely was not ready. It was not ready. It was not the best I could give. Um, so I would say to my younger self, take time, build slow and deep, be deliberate about some of the moves um, you, you make. Um, you know, and one of the things that I have been shocked a lot by is learning a lot about myself in the process of how actually emotionally vulnerable I was, um, still am. I get really um, tipped off or tipped over by small things like, oh, no, I can't believe I, that energy changed or, you know, I thought you and I worked together really well. What's going on kind of thing. And one of the things that taught me is, you know, just focus on yourself and almost understand that things aren't personal. Um, a lot of people are going through a lot of um, things and you know, if you happen to work with someone and things don't work well going going forward, it's okay, right? Um, these things happen. Um, but also take time to build, take time to let things brew, um, relax and try to enjoy the process. It was quite painful um, at first because I was just grinding too hard. I don't know where people get the idea that you're supposed to enjoy the process. My house is burning. How am I supposed <laughs> to <laughs> You know that meme of someone that's finished. Like, I'm like, oh. enjoy like, the. But you, so in my context, it became so. I've never, I've never really struggled with mental wellness issues, not even when I was in most of the multinational organizations I was in. Um, but entrepreneurship, uh, the moment I quit my job full time to focus on Masuri Organics full time was when I started, because now it was like, now it's my life on the line. Now I'm fighting for bread, right? Mm -hmm. um, I stopped, um, I stopped almost like when I was tired, I couldn't even rest. I, I would dream about Basuri Organics. Couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't do anything else. Um, it got to a point where it started actually affecting me mentally um, um, and emotionally. And I started having to be on um, anxiety meds, um, you know, over-the-counter natural kind of like meds, but from time to time I'd have to go on to anxiety meds, which was my first experience of anxiety and I would not wish it um, onto anyone. And I think for me to realize that was was um, I, me coming to an understanding that it doesn't have to be delightful all the time, but it should not kill me. It, it almost did. Uh, anxiety meds. Were you on Lixamol? No, I was on, it's called Stress Away. It's literally an over-the-counter, oh, almost natural, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that one, it's that one was, that was too weak for me. Me and, I, I needed them drugs. I needed them drugs. I, I needed them drugs. They, they like, were, I say this with love, I say this with love. Yes, there was a time where it felt, it definitely was too weak. Um, and I talked to um, a friend who was on these other meds that were prescribed. And he says, yeah, maybe go see someone. I was like, shucks. I, I, I feel like I have a... Um, an addictive personality. 
I don't know if I trust myself to go that route. Let me, let me see if I can write it out first. And, you know, I think I managed to write it out. Um, once or twice it'll come up. These days I don't even take the stress away. You, you know what? Because I live here. My hands are always up. I'm like, listen, let whatever happen, happen. Last week, um, our manufacturing got disrupted because um, of issues beyond our control. Ordinarily, Liz would have stressed, um, you know, I said, I asked the question, okay, fine, when can we go again? Um, what can we do to fix it? Nothing. Okay, cool. No problem. Let me know when we can manufacture again. And I think, honestly, I'm grateful for that because anxiety, when I'm in the thick of it, I felt like it was going to kill me. And then I shame it. Anxiety, anxiety, like you literally feel like your heart is about to stop. Yeah, and, and your body like, temperature is high and you are nothing just, in the world is pleasant. Yeah, and, uh, so thankfully I'm off those meds. But I, I will say, I will say stress away did not work for me. No! I don't, did not, it was too weak. This time when you drink that thing, you're like, what the hell is happening to you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need, a, I need the schedule four drugs. <laughs> I need the schedule four drugs. Yeah. But, I'm, but I'm so glad that we're able to talk about these things so freely now mm. and laugh about it because you know what it's part of life and um it's also helpful it took me a conversation like this to know that oh i wasn't crazy that stress away didn't really do much oh but i'm not <laughs> the manufacturer stress away it was not for me guys no i had problems my problems had problems i needed those drugs anyway we're getting towards the end of our conversation i think we can do final words we detracted a lot i had a plan we but, detracted a lot but i had a good time it was fun <laughs> 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 yeah, no, I think I think final words. Uh, what are your final words? We're going to have to wrap it up. Yeah, my final words, I guess I, I'm glad we had the conversation. I've had a good time. And I think um, each time I have these types of conversations, um, I don't think we appreciate them enough. It's, you know, when you talk and you hear yourself and sometimes you're surprised by the things you yourself say, I think those these kinds of conversations do that for me. Um, they help. They're sort of like a loud reflection. Um, I have a journal. I'm lazy to journal all the time. They're sort of like a journal of sorts. Um, they're also a place where I come to almost fill up my cup. Right, talking to someone and feeling like they see you, feeling like they hear you, and they value what you have to say um, matters. I think to most of us, certainly to me. Um, and I think I I I really appreciate and I really respect platforms, podcasts, YouTubers, um, the work that happens because it helps people like myself spread our words, spread our brands, spread our work. Um, you know, and I think um, I've enjoyed the conversation. It felt really organic and um, insightful too, especially from the perspective of your finance expertise. So um, I'm glad we did it. I think that I'm, I'm just in a very good space. Mm. Thank you for making the time. I think I enjoy the conversation. I always enjoy conversations. I think it's important that when we discuss things of entrepreneurship, that we that we have the the truth of the conversation, and then we also talk about the whole journey. And you know what? You're still literally in the infancy of it all. Yeah. It's literally the infancy, and. It, it, one day you'll be able to laugh about some of the things. Not today, but maybe one day. <laughs> Not today. One day. Today oh, I, I no, laugh no, out of the need for survival. survival. Like, no. One <laughs> day <laughs> you'll be able to laugh. But yeah. yeah. Anyway, thank you so much, guys, for joining. <laughs>